Market Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You are listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. My name is Rachel Matthews, Premier's Central Correspondent, and today I'm in conversation with Reverend Indigit Singh Bogle. Indigit is a leading theologian and Methodist minister. He's founder and president of City of Sanctuary, a former president of the Methodist Conference and former leader, CEO of the Corrymeela community in Ireland. His work in interfaith relations was recognised with an OBE in the 2005 New Year's Honours List. We're in this centre called the Sanctuary, which is based in the Victoria Hall Methodist Church. It was here where I dreamed up and imagined the whole concept of City of Sanctuary. And that was in the year 2005. Here we are uh, in 2018, sitting in this remarkable centre, which is now... Yes, a hive of activity. People come here and they receive welcome, information, support, refreshments, right in the centre of Sheffield. And this comes very much, doesn't it, from your beginning, really, as a refugee, coming here with your family from Nairobi. I came to this country in 1964 when I was just aged 11. My parents are of Indian Sikh background. They left India just after the partition, independence of India, the partition of India and Pakistan uh, in 1947. So they were right on the borders northwest of India and the borders of Pakistan and they will have seen some horrific uh, scenes of killings, rape, plunder, um, which would have been traumatic for them as young teenagers. And their parents, you can imagine them saying, uh, get out of here and go and be safe somewhere else and make a life for yourself. You can imagine uh, families of teenagers in Syria saying that to them now, to get out of here and go and find some, somewhere safe. So my parents uh, left and they went to East Africa. And they went to Nairobi and that's where I was born. They are Sikhs, so in Nairobi our house was always close to the Sikh temple. And then Kenya became independent in 1963-64, so they had to leave again. So before they were 30, uh, these two amazing people had effectively had to get out of a country and go somewhere else. So they left in January 64. My father came to Britain to find somewhere to live and work and my mother with her six children then and she was pregnant went to Tanzania next door and we were there for nine months going from one house to another as we waited to come here and in that nine months I didn't go to school or anything Uh, so eventually we came to Dudley in the West Midlands that's where my father had found work and somewhere to live and um, up to this day, in a way, that's where my home is in this country, although I live in Sheffield. So Dudley, very much where you were brought up, isn't it, in terms of your schooling? And what what was it like for you? Could you remember? You hadn't been to school, had you? Because you, had your mum schooled you? Yes, for nine months before I came here to Britain, I'd been educated at home. I could speak English very well, but that was largely because my mother taught it to me, the alphabet. She taught me the basics of the mathematics. When we came to live in Dudley, I went to school, and um, it was not a pleasant experience. Um, the My schoolmates, I found it a bit strange. Firstly, I couldn't understand them. Their language, their black country accent, I used to think... I thought people here spoke English and I just could not. Hey, yo, where you been, you know, and all that kind of (laughs) accent. So that was number one. Secondly, uh, for the first time ever, I became aware of the colour of my skin. Uh, I'm of Indian background and and so, and I wore a turban at the time. I think I was the only one in the whole of Dudley who actually wore a turban. 
and my schoolmates found me a bit of an oddity and and generally I found them to be quite racist they would they would feel that if I rubbed my shoulders against them they'd have to wipe off their shoulder uh, if I'd been sitting on a chair they'd wipe the chair before they sat on it and all that I, I found that um, strange as an 11 year old and felt very much on the outside of the school difficult uh, you know when you're aged about 11, 12 uh, at that age, you want to belong to a group. You want to be part of a, uh, a circle of friends. But I didn't have any. And uh, my only claim to fame about being in that school is that Lenny Henry also went to that school. He often speaks in his uh, shows about his experience in that school. Uh, and he had a similar experience. And both of us, in the end, left school without any qualifications. But, you know, we've both made our way in life but because the school was so difficult and because I'd always gone to a Sikh temple so I was looking for somewhere to worship. So you came over school was uncomfortable you hadn't got a network of friends but your faith at that time you wanted to go and worship as a Sikh and you're looking around where do I go? That's right so at that time in the whole of Britain there were only two Sikh temples one in Smedic one in Leeds. Uh, there wasn't one near our house. Uh, I'd been used to going to the nearest place of worship, so uh, I decided to do that. And it happened to be the nearest place to me was a Methodist chapel, uh, and I started to go there. The interesting thing is there were actually a number of young Sikh boys who used to go to this church. There was a remarkable man called Bert Pissel, who is well known in in the Midlands, he made it his business to go and knock on the doors of newly arrived immigrants into Dudley and to just say a word of welcome. And he invited them to his Bible class. Uh, and so I arrived in this chapel. I was made to feel welcome. There was somebody at the door who just said, you're very welcome here, young man. And, and it was a real contrast to my experience in school. So I was made to feel welcome um, uh, and I felt I could belong here. And so I kept going, and um, I started to read the New Testament, and gradually I came to be drawn into the story of Christ, and I was particularly captivated by the way he spent most of his time sitting with and eating with those who felt the most on the outside. And that was my experience at the time, and I thought, well, if that's... That's a revelation of God, and if that's what God is like, then I want to know a bit more. Uh, so I started to read the New Testament, and I was just drawn more and more into it. And I would say I became a follower of Christ. I found in him a guru that gave me direction and purpose and meaning for, uh, for my life. And so I became... A lot of people started to ask me what I found worthwhile in Christ, and as a result of that, I became a local preacher in the Methodist Church, and then uh, I trained as a Methodist minister. I was ordained in 1980, uh, so I worked in Wolverhampton for a while, for the first uh, seven years of ministry, then I came to Sheffield. And so your family, you came from a Sikh background, I, I presume they continued to practice as Sikhs. How did they feel about you? Did you um, cut your hair? Did you continue to wear a turban? What what happened in those early years? Yeah, it didn't um, trouble me that I was a wearer of a turban. That That didn't conflict with being drawn into being a follower of Christ. I mean, you know, I, I didn't think I needed to do anything different other than to be myself. I could follow Christ within my Sikh culture. The first followers of Jesus were Jews. No, they didn't put away their Judaism. They they retained their Jewish identity. I retained my Sikh identity. Yes, of course, my parents found it a bit difficult as I got more drawn into uh, church life. Of course, they wondered why I was moving away from Sikhism and um, any parent would be like that because 
parents bring their children up with all the good things they want them to have and then if you turn away from something your parents have given you they they wonder why and so they did say what's lacking in the Sikh faith you know well I have to say it wasn't because there was anything lacking in what they'd given me I just found a different direction in the life and the person and the teaching of Christ so Uh, at some point I did actually have my hair cut and the turban disappeared but that wasn't because I was being drawn more into church life it was just something as a teenager I did teenagers do all kinds of things almost as an act of rebellion and I think my cutting of hair and the removal of the turban was a, a, a perhaps a bit of rebellion on my part from you know as a teenager nothing more than that and your mom i mean i know she's been such an important part a, a great role model to you did she accept the decisions that you were making can you think of a time where she spoke about it either to you or anybody else yeah of course you found it difficult um i've done everything that a, a young sikh lad ought not to do you know um uh, so i went off and started going to church then i became more drawn in as a follower of christ then i became a methodist minister you know and uh, so i couldn't be anonymous it was all right just to keep it quiet and not say much about it and just get on with it you know uh, but i got more and more known and so yes it was a bit of a an embarrassment i think my mother made sense of it by saying to people who criticized her uh, she said well he could have gone to do something bad you know he could have gone and joined some um gangs and criminals at least he's doing good work and he's in, engaged in the work of god so i think she found her meaning in that and then there were times when prominent sikh leaders actually affirmed me in her presence and that helped her a little bit so i went on from being fairly anonymous to being quite prominent when i became president of the methodist church and conference and it was very difficult to keep that under the carpet uh, you know my story was in time magazine of india and it, you know it was an international news my mother in the end and all my family 40 representatives of my family came to the methodist conference when i was installed as president and at one point my mother came up onto the stage of the conference hall and gave me a gift and the gift was a very special cloth called a ramala and a ramala is a cloth in which the scriptures the holy scriptures of the sikhs are wrapped as a sign of respect and honor and dignity and i think when she came up to the stage and gave me this ramala it was almost like a moment where she said to the methodist church right this is my son you can have him but you got to respect him and um, and so here you are so i think that's my interpretation of it anyway i think it seems to me that there came a point in her life when she thought yeah this is indigent now and i'm going to respect him and actually whenever i came home she always treated me with great respect which she would normally give to her priest when her priest came to see her did you ever feel that you needed to convert your own family I think the most important task of any follower of Jesus Christ is to just be a good follower of Jesus Christ, you know, put your faith into practice. For me that's the best form of evangelism. Be a disciple of Christ, put his teaching into practice and in all your uh, lifestyle and activity uh, in the way you are, try to be Christ-like and to be a revelation of Christ. and leave the rest to god so that's it you know and I, I, there there are actually members of my family in the wider circle of my family who are worshiping in churches as followers of christ i went to the baptism of one 
uh, earlier this year. Uh, so I didn't go out of my way to try to make them Christians. I don't try to do that with anyone. I simply feel my task is to to be a good follower of Christ, to put my faith into practice and to leave the rest in the hands of God. Talking a little bit about being president, was that a highlight for you? What what were you able to do during that time? It was a year, wasn't it, of you travelling around as that representative? A person becomes president of the Methodist Conference. It's not Methodist Church, but Methodist Conference. And the number one task of a president is to chair the Methodist Conference. And so for many years I'd been a member of conference and had not been there just as a pedestrian and just taken a back seat. I was often on my feet challenging a Methodist church to go in particular directions. I think I was particularly always trying to highlight concerns about asylum seekers and refugees. You know, my own family from 1947, as I explained, uh, have known what it is to have to move from one country to another. I had to do that as a youngster. And so I've been aware of the difficulties that creates for people. So perhaps because of my own awareness, I have agitated churches to respond with compassion and as required with anger at what happens to people and to do all we can to build cultures of welcome and hospitality and safety. So that was the kind of thing I was always talking about. I was constantly on my feet to stand up to protect people from intimidation and oppression and um, and to you know to reflect a lifestyle that wasn't about domination but about equality and fairness. So I think that was how I came to be president. So they, I didn't become, I wasn't an unknown quantity in the life of the church. I was a well-known person in the conference and I was honoured for exactly what I stood for. And as president, therefore, you chair the conference and that gives you an opportunity to just be yourself and to chair in your own way, which I did. But also, then you have a year in which you can highlight particular things. And I did have opportunity to highlight issues. So, to just give you one example, I thought at one point I should write to church leaders and ask them to visit detention centres where asylum seekers... I prefer to talk about people seeking sanctuary, where people seeking sanctuary were being detained so that we could see for ourselves what was their experience. And then I thought, well, I I am a church leader. I don't have to write to anyone to say, go and do this as a church leader. I could do it as a church leader. So I did. I visited every detention centre in Britain and Ireland to see for myself what was happening for people who were behind locked doors. Their crime, well, it's not a crime. Migration is not a crime. To apply for asylum is not a crime. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, to apply for asylum. So I thought, why, why are people being detained? And I visited and saw for myself, just to give you one story, uh, at one point when I went in, there was a young man who was holding his wrists in front of me, which seemed to have some bruises on them, and I thought he was trying to show me that, you know, he tried to cut them, but that wasn't the case. He just said to me, where's your camera? Where's your camera? As he showed me his wrists. And you're not allowed to take your camera in, and I was thinking maybe people have photographed uh, him, and he's now trying to say to me, don't you photograph me. Actually, he was saying, why don't you photograph me? Because, he said, when people come into this country, we are photographed, he said, and there are pictures of us queuing to come into this country. That's the message being portrayed. There's these thousands of people wanting to come to Britain. He says, but nobody photographs us when we are being removed from here. And so many people are removed, often quite forcefully. What he was showing me was the marks of handcuffs, because that morning uh, there was an attempt to deport him, to forcefully put him on a plane, and he'd resisted that, and so he was still 
now in this detention center and saying to me and to people like me, you should photograph people being removed from here uh, because there are plenty of people being brought into the country. People need to see what happens to, to us. So I, I saw for myself, I took people with me so that it wasn't just me seeing and then I wrote a little booklet, a little report, it's called Unlocking the Doors and I gave a copy of it to the Home Secretary. I was particularly saying, do not imprison in conventional prisons people who, have, who are seeking sanctuary and haven't committed a crime. And uh, that, that was my, my concern, and, and it was one of the things I tried to highlight. So as president, you know, you are a leader, and you have got an opportunity to give leadership. And I, my specific concern was to highlight the needs and the concerns of people who are the most on the margins, the people who feel least welcome and least valued, and to give them a voice and to make them visible. And then from there, I went on to think about, so what needs to happen to build cultures of welcome and hospitality for those who need it most? I mean, Indigit, that that time of visiting the detention centres was, in one sense, time-wise so long ago, but, yeah, it's a very similar story today. Where did you find... Jesus. Let me give you an example. One day I was sitting in the prison and in the chapel of the prison and there were a number of people who were asylum seekers who were detained there and we were worshipping together. At one point I looked at the painting which was on the wall and it's a, it's a, a, a representation of the Holman Hunt painting uh, it reflects Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Uh, people will be familiar with this image of Christ standing, long white robe, crown on his head. He's got a lantern in his hand. He's standing by a door with briars and knocking on there. And it's this kind of an image. It says the light of the world, but it also carries that image from Revelation where it says behold I stand at the door and knock and if you open the door and let me in I will come in and sup with you well that was the image so I said to somebody why have you chosen that picture to be in here and one of the people who was actually imprisoned there he said that we painted that picture here we that representation says, well, did you choose that painting for a reason? He said, yes. He said, because uh, when we looked at that, we noticed that uh, the door was shut and it looked like it hadn't been opened for a long time and there were all these weeds growing over the doors, which is a sign that it hadn't been opened. And he said, that's a bit like our experience of knocking on the door of this country and it's a door that doesn't get opened, and we just stand in there and knocking, and we feel a bit like Christ, you know. So, where do I see Christ? Well, I saw I see Christ therefore in people who like the portrayal of Christ in that painting, standing knocking on the door. Refugees, no people seeking sanctuary, knocking on the door. And, and really saying, open, and if you will let us come in, we, we will sup with you, we will eat, we will share together, and we have much, therefore, mutually uh, to receive, to give, and to receive from each other. I, I've never forgotten that. That stayed with me. So, um, and, and when I kind of engage in my work with people who are seeking sanctuary, I... I keep telling that story. That's where I see Christ. And Jesus himself said, Inasmuch as you did it to those considered to be the least important, you did it to me. No, When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And so I'm interested to see and to serve Christ 
in everyday life. So where do I see and serve Christ? And, or in another way, where is God? No, that's a big question. Where is God? I find the answer to that question in the words of Christ and the direction he gave. He said, you will find God, you will find me and see me and serve me in as much as you did it to the least important. You did it to me. That's where you will see me. That's where you will see my face. That's where God is. And I'm, I take that and I've really found that to be true. You're listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue. What a beautiful name it is. You've heard the songs. Now discover the story of the church that changed the way the world worships. In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, we go behind the scenes of Hillsong. In the UK alone, they've grown from 110 members to 14,000. But not everybody is a fan. We chart the rise of this megachurch and put tough questions to their leaders. Plus news, reviews and much more. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Good news, we've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You are listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. My name is Rachel Matthews, Premier Central Correspondent, and today I'm in conversation with former President of the Methodist Conference, Indijit Singh Bogle. Uh, my engagement with the people seeking sanctuary and refugees uh, in detention centres, but any anywhere really, reminded me that what people need, and my own experience when I was a young child, when I came to Dudley, uh, finding myself on the outside in my school experience, you know, when people have lost their home, when they have to give up everything because of war or famine or persecution and go to another place, you know, they would be grateful for a good reception, welcome and hospitality, and most of all, they're looking for safety. That became very clear to me through my engagement with people seeking sanctuary and with refugees. And so I've lived in Sheffield ever since I left Wolverhampton and came to live here in 1987. I've got to know the city well, and this city has a, a long history, perhaps because of its steel industry, of people coming here from all parts of the world uh, for many, many years. And more recently, it's been people coming here uh, seeking sanctuary. And there's some remarkable organisations in Sheffield, many uh, groups, who've been working very hard to build cultures of welcome and hospitality here. After I'd been here for a while and I engaged with all these groups and was grateful for all they were doing, uh, one day I thought, I need to get them all together. So I took the initiative to in hold a meeting um, with a colleague of mine to hold a meeting to bring people together from all these different refugee organisations. And we met. And at one point I said to them, so tell us about your work, and they did, and we, we applauded the work they were doing, some remarkable work going on, and has been going on for a long time. So then I said, you're doing fantastic work, but if we worked together, we could really make a big impact on the whole culture of our city. And then I told them about a vision, a biblical, scriptural vision of cities of refuge from Numbers chapter 35, where God says to Moses, set up cities of refuge so that if anybody's life is in danger, 
then they could go to these cities and be safe there while their case is being processed. So I thought, well, we need uh, cities of refuge today, and we'll call them cities of sanctuary. And the way it will work is a bit like the fair trade city. You know, you get a fair trade recognition if you can get so many individuals and organizations to buy and sell and serve fair trade items. And we imagine that if we can get lots of organizations and individuals working together to intentionally do everything they can to be welcoming and hospitable and to do all they can to help people looking for safety to be safe, then we could go to our local authority even and say, look, this is the kind of city we want to live in. How you, how can you support us? And if they also committed themselves to sub- supporting us and working with us, we would be declared a city of sanctuary. Uh, what do you think? And everybody at that meeting thought that was great and uh, they'd like to do that. So the 30 or 40 organisations that were there, we all then pledged ourselves to work in this way and to encourage others to do so. That was the year 2005 and I said that this we have a 10-year strategy to get uh, Sheffield to be become a city of sanctuary. Well, two years after we started, Sheffield was declared a city of sanctuary with many organisations and individuals working for this vision and our local government, local authority, cross-party support, uh, saying, we want to support you. And on uh, Refugee Day... In 2007, 18th of June, the Lord Mayor of Sheffield came out onto the steps of the town hall and said, we declare Sheffield a city of sanctuary. That was quite remarkable, to say the least. And and since then, people have said to us, how did you do that? We would like this to happen in our city. And so there are now over 100 cities, towns, villages, boroughs, areas uh, working to this vision you know many of the cities big cities like Birmingham uh, Leicester Bradford Swansea Glasgow you know they they are recognized as city of sanctuary there are schools of sanctuary you know where schools say we will do all we can to make children of all backgrounds feel really valued and welcomed and respected and safe uh, universities of sanctuary and uh, hospitals of sanctuary. So it's a kind of a vision that seems to have really taken off. It's captured the imagination of people. This this idea from Hebrew scriptures of city of refuge has grabbed the imagination of people of all faiths and people people who profess no particular religious faith. All of them understand this idea, this vision, and are working under this umbrella of sanctuary, which comes from cities of refuge, to work together uh, to really make a difference in their neighbourhoods. I'm I'm utterly, utterly uh, gobsmacked, if I can use that term, (laughs) uh, to say that that's what's happened. And as you say, it's now a charity, yes, but a national movement across Britain and Ireland. And this year, in June, on the 24th of June, which was a Sunday at the end of Refugee Week, first time it was named Sanctuary Sunday. So every year, the Sunday at the end of Refugee Week, it's the 23rd of June next year, uh, annually will be marked as Sanctuary Sunday. My hope, Rachel, is that churches, not just people of other faiths and so on, but churchy people, Christian people, followers of Christ, will really engage with this and perhaps look at how they can support their local City of Sanctuary working group. And if there isn't one, start one. And what about looking at being a church of sanctuary. A church of sanctuary is a church anywhere 
It could be in a, a tiny village where there are no refugees. It could be in a, a, th- a kind of a thoroughly multi-ethnic city like Birmingham and so on. Wherever you are, people can say, we're going to do all we can to really understand why people have to leave their countries, risk their lives on dodgy boats in dangerous waters of the sea, sometimes clasping the undersides of aeroplanes, many of people perishing on the way in the prison. Why do they take risks like that? Leave their home. Why do they take risks like that than to seek sanctuary? So we need to sit down with people, listen to their story, invite refugees to your church to really ask them that question. Why did you, you know, have to get away? Because there are so many myths and so much misrepresentation of people seeking sanctuary and refugees. Now, they're not just coming here because they think that's a good idea. They're having to get away because their life is in danger. And so we need to do more to understand that and to do all we can to... I think it it is in the DNA of the Church and the followers of Christ. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. You know, it's there right at the heart of our faith, of the Christian faith, and this concept of cities of refuge, to do all we can to build cultures of welcome and hospitality and safety for people who really need that. Indigit, I met you personally last year when you invited me to go on a pilgrimage to northern India and it was such a privilege to go with you on a journey that was so important to you and for you to share that with us. Who is the gentleman in the turban that you saw in a Methodist college that inspired you so much? (laughs) Well, I, I love to go to India any time, and it was a pleasure to, to take you and others with me. And um, part of it is really to touch my own roots and uh, to take the opportunity to drink from the well, if you like, which nurtures me, which is the Indian culture, uh, Indian church, Indian Christian theology, uh, and the Sikh faith. Um, So we went to the northwest of India, to Punjab, and my own parents, as I said, left India in 1947 at the time of partition, so I wanted us to go to the borders there uh, to meet the supreme leader of the Sikhs sitting in the Holy of Holies in the Golden Temple to hear his perspective on challenges of faith, all that. Why take the trouble to do all that? Well... A long time ago, as a young uh, person, newly into the story of Christ, turbaned young fellow, I was beginning to think, are there other people of Indian background who are followers of Jesus? Because I didn't know of any. Uh, I felt a little bit uh, troubled by this idea that they might just be me, and I was thinking, why? And then... One day I found myself in a college, the Kingsmead uh, Missionary College of the Methodist Church in Selly Oak. And in the doorway there was a, a picture of a gentleman. It's not very dissimilar to the light of uh, the world image of Christ by Holman and But here is a man in a long flowing robe. Um, he'd got a turban and he was wearing sandals. And I said to somebody, who's that? And they said, it's Sadhu Sundar Singh. So who Sadhu Sundar Singh? Well, he was a follower of Christ. Uh, I just looked at that image and I thought, well, that's amazing that there is somebody who looks a bit like me, uh, who is a follower of Christ. And that was a great inspiration to me. And ever since then, I've tried to learn more about Sadhu Sundar Singh. And uh, last year, uh, I was on sabbatical and I went to his village to actually speak to his descendants to see what memories they have of him and to learn a bit more about him because he's such an inspiration to me. What I love about him is that 
he to all intents and purposes has the appearance of a Sikh and he is a follower of Christ that was me and that is still me and uh, so he is a, a great hero so I have determined that I will take a pilgrimage uh, personally to his village but uh, to take others to accompany me because I think I'd like to introduce more people to Sadhu Sundar Singh. You know, he's one of only two Indians who are noted as saints in the Church of India's uh, calendar of saints, him and Pandita Ramabai. Uh, but Sadhu Sundar Singh, his date is in September each year. So he's special to me. I want to know more about him. So the pilgrimage to India was really... Yes, it was about going to his village and we did that and you were with me and you went to his house, the little church which is there named after him and met some of his family to see what pride they take as Sikhs in the fact that he was from this village and he was a disciple of Christ. I think that's great worldwide and we met there the supreme leader of the Sikhs um, and each one of us, you could put your question to him and to ask him to say a little bit about his understanding of the Christian faith and so on and that was a great, And I mean how many people can say Rachel like you and me that we have sat with the, the supreme leader of the Sikhs in his own uh, holy seat we and were, had conversation with him we did we were really blessed we uh, <laughs> he came in and we were all we'd learnt a little bit of Indian hadn't we to welcome him and he, he spoke to Indijit and said you know stop stop before we do anything we all must have a cup of tea yeah. and so we were very happy um Obviously, I know about Sadhu Sundar Singh because of the journey and because of reading up on him. For others, this will be a new name. So are you able just to give a little brief history of how he came to faith and how he then took that message around northern India? And indeed, he came to England. And it was a hundred years ago, wasn't it? That's right. So he was uh, uh, around a hundred years ago and he came to Britain. Uh, in 1920, so in a couple of years we'll be marking a hundred years since he came to Britain and uh, perhaps there will be we, we'll organise something to, to mark the occasion but he was a great um, pilgrim and travelled all over the world to proclaim the message of Christ and when people saw him they really thought he was actually Christ because people who saw him they said he, he looked so much like Christ but as when he was a young lad in this village in India that we went to, Rampur, he went to a church school, but he was actually a great opponent of the, the Christian faith and burnt Bibles and so on. But there was an occasion when he was troubled, just after his mother died, and maybe it was partly to do with his grief and so on and his own searching for personal identity and uh, faith, um, he determined that if there is a God, then the God should reveal himself to him. Uh, and if not, he said, I'm going to go and lie down on the railway line and that'll be the end of my life. It is said that he had a vision. He himself says this. he had a vision of Christ and he felt greatly blessed by that. And it really turned his life around and to the extent that his father found it a bit surprising that from going to burn Bibles he was now reading the Bible and focusing his life on the teachings of Christ. Un unlike me, I never left home as a follower of Christ. He left home. He, had, he felt he had, it to, had to get out and so he wandered around uh, spreading the story of Christ and he was always on the roads People, there was a time when he thought he might train for ministry, but he decided he didn't want to do that. So I think he refused to be uh, reduced by church, uh, but kept his identity and followed Christ within the Sikh culture. And people loved him for that. There's some remarkable stories about him. The one I like most is where one day he was observing 
people having a cup of tea. There were Indians and uh, British people drinking tea. The Indians were drinking tea out of clay pots without a handle on them. They were just holding the cup in their hand, in the palm of their hand. The English and the British were drinking their tea out of a teacup with a little handle and the little finger sticking up in the air, you know. As he observed them, he thought to himself, if the gospel is to be proclaimed in India, then it has to be proclaimed in the kind of modes that make sense to Indian people, in the Indian cup and not in the British cup. (laughs) So that remains a challenge up to this day for all of us, wherever we are, to try to uh, communicate our faith in ways that make sense in the context where we find ourselves and in the language that makes sense there also. As I introduced you at the beginning, Indigit, you've got an OBE. Can you tell us more? Well, I was uh, quite surprised when I was nominated for that. I have no idea up to this day. Uh, you know, Somebody has to nominate you. I don't know who nominated me. And I'm not really into awards and, and so on, but... I felt, you know, up to the age of 11, I didn't have shoes, no. I was a refugee, came here as a refugee. I've made my way. I came here, I was troubled by the racism in schools, you know, and I've been troubled by racism since. But in spite of all the hostility I have faced, all the difficulties I have encountered, I've made my contribution, no. And it's been a significant contribution. Uh, For example, uh, I was there right at the beginning of the interfaith movement in this country in Wolverhampton. As a 20-year-old, I helped to form one of the first interfaith groups in the country. Now there are over 300. I was at the beginning of the City of Sanctuary movement, which gives direction on how to engage um, when people really don't know how to respond to all the refugees. So this gives a direction. And uh, I've made my contribution in spite of the difficulties. And that's been noted, and I'm glad that some people have noted that and wanted to honour me for it. And so I was prepared to say yes to accepting the OBE. And I regard it as a kind of um, a recognition of excellent contribution I've made and I wanted to be able to say to people you can make a contribution it doesn't matter if you start in a way where you feel completely powerless and helpless as a young child refugee coming here you know you can really make a contribution there are opportunities for you to make a difference and you too can do it so I'd like to think I'm a role model to others, you know, who might be thinking, so what difference can I make? And I also felt that uh, some people might dismiss me as a a kind of a lunatic religious person who keeps going on about refugees all the time, that actually uh, I've got the OBE, you know, so take some notice of what I'm saying. So actually, it gives a bit of strength and credibility also to the messages I bring. It's a, yeah, it was a, 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 a delight and an honour, and I'm, I'm very proud to, to hold the OBE. There are people who, who kind of reject things like MBEs and OBE. I'm very proud to, to be a holder of an OBE. We've talked about um, City of Sanctuary, we've talked about your OBE, we've talked about the pilgrimage that you take and that you take other people on, um, you've got a doctorate in theology, we've... What next? You're sitting down from the Methodist Church in September, are you going to have a rest? Are you going to put your feet up? What are you going to do next? <laughs> so, it's... 42 years I've engaged in ministry. I would like to have a little rest. Um, I think it's important to have spaces in your life where you you just kind of 
give yourself some time to 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 look at where you're going next so i'd be glad to have some some rest yes to put my feet up but what i really want to do is to write a bit i'd love to write about sadhus and the singh i'd love to write my own story i've actually done quite a lot of work on the gospel according to saint john uh i'd like to write that up a little bit i'd like to write more about city of sanctuary you know produce more resources for churches also to conduct the kind of pilgrimages you know like the one that i've talked about going to india to go to places like the borders of india and pakistan and to look at how people live there and what the issues are how christians and sikhs engage in dialogue there in india and, and the lessons we can learn i'm not going to be sitting around twiddling my thumb thinking so what shall i do now my life my 42 years in ministry has given me a considerable amount of experience and lessons i've learned and i'd like to write about those experiences and share more widely the lessons i've learned and i will do that in writing is there one particular lesson you've learned you could share today the most important thing for me is what i said if you're thinking about so where is god i mean that is the big question and uh, by what values shall i uh direct my life what is the direction for my life then i would say i find it in the words of christ in as much as you did it to the least of these you did it to me that sentence which is repeated four times in the positive and negative way in matthew chapter 25 because it's repeated like that gives me direction for my life and i would say we will judge individual personal national and international morality and spirituality by the measure to which we are able to give attention to those who are considered to be the least important you have been listening to the profile with premier central correspondent rachel matthews and i have been in conversation with reverend indrajit singh bogor the founder and president of the city of sanctuary and a former president of the methodist conference thank you for joining us